recently, Mike and I took a trip to Louisville, Kentucky to attend Together for the Gospel with around 12,000-ish other Christians. Uh, It's a biannual conference that's aimed at educating, equipping, and encouraging pastors. It was fun. I I learned a lot. I'm even going to use an illustration that I heard while I was there today. Uh, It'll be the one that's really good. It's something funny happened on the way there, not really funny, uh, but, but Mike and I, when I was about four hours from home, I realized that I had dump, done something really stupid. I was surprised, uh, Mike was not, but, but what I had done was I had left my wallet at home, and so I, I called my lovely wife and whom I had left alone with five kids, and I asked her to uh, overnight my wallet to me in Louisville to just send it to the hotel. It's a big hotel. It has a UPS store in it, so all their mail goes there. It's like, yeah, just make sure they uh, require the signature, and we can make sure that that I get my wallet. No problem. Well, to to spare you, I guess, all the details, it didn't go as smoothly as it was supposed to. I ended up spending a a lot of time at the UPS store uh, with great angst and a little bit of um, Seinfeld-esque humor. Uh, Because what would happen is I was like, went to get my package. They told me that they had signed for the package, but that the package was not there. And I'm going, isn't that the whole point of the signature process? Like, I pay to have my mail certified so that when you get it, you sign for the package so I know who has the package and we know where the package is. Isn't isn't that the whole purpose of this thing we have going on here? But alas, they they could not produce my package. Eventually, it got sorted out, even though I was out of sorts. Uh, Somebody had not followed the proper protocol and put the package at the front desk of the hotel rather than the UPS store inside of it. And so eventually I tracked my wallet down and all was well. I share that with you to say things (laughs) didn't go according to plan for me. And oftentimes, that's how it works with us. We, we have our day mapped out, maybe our year or our week or a month, and things just fall apart. They, they don't go the way that we had planned them. But this is not the way it is with God. Everything always unfolds according to his plan. God's plan always unfolds according to to plan. He's not surprised or taken off guard. He doesn't have to call an audible. He's got it figured out. It's in light of that truth that I want you to see in Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 this morning. It's in light of that truth that I want to exhort you this morning to uh, not give up. Don't give up on the lost, on each other, or on God, and those three things that I'm exhorting you to not give up on will comprise our outline on the lost, on each other, on God. Let's pray, and we'll get into the text together this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to obey you by giving up an hour maybe more of our Sunday, your day, to devote ourselves to gathering together in praise and honor and worship of you. 
Our gathering together is a declaration that we don't belong to this world or to ourselves, but ultimately to you. It's a declaration that our allegiance isn't to our comfortable beds or an easy Sunday morning, but to you. Thank you for the opportunity to express our love to you through this obedience in gathering together. Pray that you would meet us here. We, your people, cry out for your presence. Send your spirit to us. Help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. Help the congregation to hear a better sermon than I prepared. Help us to honor you with our singing and our praying and preaching and all the aspects of our service this morning. It is all for you and we are ready to hear from you. Give us ears that we might hear. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Before we get started, let's do a little previously on Acts section here. If you've ever seen a TV show, that's how they roll it out. They give you those little cut scenes, kind of highlights from the previous week's episode, and then they transition you into where all the action is at. And so that's what we're going to do. If you remember last week in Acts, we saw that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and over the span of 40 days has been appearing to his followers by many convincing proofs. He's teaching them that indeed he has risen bodily from the dead, that he is alive and that he has a kingdom that he's going to rule from heaven. And he convinces them he's alive over and over again. He, right? he says, feel my scars, you know, feed me some fish, I'm going to eat some breakfast, and follow the scriptures. All of the scriptures point to me. They're all fulfilled in me and through me and my people. You guys are, are going to go out and proclaim this good news into all the world. We, we summarized the whole book of Acts last week, and I'll do it every week for you. As Jesus goes up, that's he ascends to heaven to rule from his throne. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, that is down into his people at Pentecost, that's chapter 2, and the church goes out. And that's the majority of the book of Acts, is the church going out into the world and witnessing to the truth that Jesus has died for the sins of men and women, that he is raised from the dead, which shows the acceptability of that sacrifice before God, and that he rules and reigns in heaven that he's given his people his spirit, that God dwells with his people as promised, and that he is going to one day return to make everything sad untrue, to rule fully and finally in space and time here on earth. And that's the hope to which we look. We we also saw he told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be filled with my spirit. You're going to tell the world of this good news, but you're not going to do it without the Holy Spirit. You've got to wait on my Holy Spirit, whom I'm going to give you. Because apart from him, the word will not do its work. We learn that Jesus builds his kingdom by his word and his spirit through his church. And then he ascended to rule and reign as he said he would. Seated on the throne where he rules and he intercedes for us before God in heaven. He is a king upon his throne. And the disciples 
Well, they were told to go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they obey their good and mighty king. And that's where we come in at verse 12, where we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, likely the same upper room that they were hiding out from people when Jesus had resurrected after going to the cross. But they're in this upper room, and Peter and James, I'm in verse 13, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, they're all there. Verse 14, they all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is surprising Not that they're in the upper room or that they're devoted to prayer. What's surprising is that Mary and the brothers of Jesus are in this upper room with the other believers. Quick aside, uh, this really throws some shade at that Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Jesus has brothers, you know, elsewhere we're told he has sisters. Uh, Especially because the word here for um, brothers means brothers. And so Jesus has brothers and sisters and they're with the believers, and, and this is surprising. Why? Well, because the last time we saw Jesus' family, namely his brothers and his mother, they thought Jesus was crazy. Do you guys remember this? In, in Mark chapter 3, I'll read it to you. It's in chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, Jesus is, is in a house, right? Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Belzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. And so there are his mother and his brothers saying of Jesus at the front end of his ministry, he's squished inside of this house like you might be in the middle seat on an airplane. Have you ever been in there? And they say, can't even eat got like an in-flight meal trying to get after it. Like Jesus has all these people that are flooding to him. He's teaching and his mother and his brothers are outside and they're like, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. And the scribes are next to them going, I don't know that he's crazy. He's just got a demon. That's how he drives out demons. They think Jesus is insane. And, And can you blame them? Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? Jesus, you are the worst. You think you just walk on water. Actually, James, I do walk on water. I can. And you need to repent of your sins and of your anger towards me right now and put your faith in me. Jesus, you are out of your mind. This is just unbelievable. You're crazy. I mean, John 7, 5 just straight up tells us, not even his brothers believed in him. They don't believe him. They they think he is insane. But but here we see they're with the rest of believers united in prayer, waiting for the Holy Spirit. Something has happened. Something has changed in the lives of Jesus' family. If you remember too, right after Mark, they say he's crazy and Then they're trying to get into the house and the people are like, hey Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, 
who are my mother and my brothers? Because my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. And what he's saying in that statement is the spiritual reality of those people who are united to God, who hear and, and do his word, those are my real brothers and sisters. There are more my brothers and sisters than those who are my brothers and sisters through biology. He's saying the bond of the spirit is thicker than blood. But now we see that they can, his mother and his brothers, his family can truly be called his family because they've given themselves to God. They've given themselves to belief in him. They've come alive to God. They've begun to have faith in Jesus. Friends, it seems unlikely for James especially and the rest of his brothers that they, they would have faith in him, especially the way that their journey got started off. Right? You guys remember the parable of the sower, some of the, the seed that represents the gospel goes on that hard path and the, and the birds and Satan come and they snatch the word away and belief never happens. And it seems if we didn't have the fuller picture that Jesus' family would be among those who were outside of his saving grace. Those who would not believe. But time would prove that that wasn't true. That in fact they were good soil. And the gospel seeds were sitting there below the surface just waiting to germinate and spring forth in faith. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on the lost people in your life. Keep sowing those gospel seeds. Keep loving them. Keep devoting yourself to prayer. Jesus is mighty to save, and no one is beyond his reach. No one is further away from him than just a single step, and it's the step of repentance. That's all you have to do is to turn from your sin, one step to Christ, and ask him for forgiveness. He's not, he's not going to judge you there, ridicule you for your sin. No, he died for your sin so that when you do turn to him, he can simply wipe away your tears, wrap you in a hug, and let you know that you are loved and accepted in him. Don't give up on your lost friends. I know some of you maybe think of someone and you're like, you know, Jimmy Lipper is never coming to Christ. You don't know him like I know him. Big sinner. But friends, God is mighty to save. He, he is sovereign. He can do it. And, and it's never too late for someone to come to salvation. It wasn't too late for Jesus' brothers his family. It wasn't too late for Peter who denied Jesus. It wasn't too late for Paul who persecuted the church. It wasn't too late for the thief on the cross. And it's, it's not too late for you. And it's not too late for those you know. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep preaching. Trust God. He saves lost people all the time. It's what he does if we will be faithful in witnessing. Don't give up on the lost. Now this, this group is together and they are praying. They're, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit 
to come, but there is a problem, and it's, it's the reason that this text is here. Because what we expect to happen is, all right, Jesus goes up into heaven, he's promised the Holy Spirit to come, and the next scene we expect is Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit coming down. But there's this weird kind of section of Scripture that comes in between and interrupts it. Well, the reason it's here, I think, is to show us, A, that the disciples are obedient in waiting, but B, and more importantly, maybe I should have labeled this reason A, but, but more importantly, most importantly, what we see is there's a problem. The disciples, who have now been dubbed apostles, are short one. Like, over and over and over throughout the Gospels, they're called the Twelve. You know, the Twelve did this, and the Twelve did that. And now, they're the eleven. And that, that just doesn't have the same ring to it. This is, a, this is a problem. It's not like uh, the Big 12 where you can lose teams and only have 10 teams but still call yourself the Big 12. Right? Peter says this is, a, this is a problem and we're going to resolve it. We need to pick someone else to replace Judas to get our numbers back to 12. And we'll talk about the reason why in a second, but this is why Peter stands up to speak. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Pretty picture. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language that field is called Hakeldama. That was my best attempt at it. That is, field of blood. Um... This is the, this section of scripture. Um, some point to and say this is problematic because it doesn't match up with what Matthew says about Judas in Matthew chapter 27. Okay, and so uh, when we come to passages of scripture like this, we have to ask a really important question: Is this a necessary contradiction that we are seeing, which means these two things cannot be reconciled, and therefore? Uh, we have to throw out the baby in the bathwater, all of the scriptures. There's a mistake. Or is this an apparent contradiction? One that it seems like it doesn't make sense on the face of it, but that can be harmonized. And in the Bible, any uh, so-called contradiction that you find is going to be an apparent contradiction. It's going to be able to be harmonized. And so let me show you this one. Uh, Matthew says that Judas hung himself. Acts says that he fell headlong and his body burst and all that fun stuff. It's pretty graphic. Matthew says that Judas took the money, the blood money that he got from betraying Jesus, and that he threw it back into the temple. Acts says that he bought a field with it. So which is it? How did Judas die? Who bought the field? Now, here is, I think, the simplest harmony. Uh, there are many explanations. This is the one, I think, that makes the most sense. Uh, when Judas had hung himself after a while, uh, the branch upon which he hung himself or the rope, something broke and he fell headlong into that field and uh, when one is dead for a while, you begin to swell and his organs and everything bursts forth. I think it fits just fine. 
Who bought the field? This is the second one. I think this is really simple. Uh, that because the money was Judas's, when the temple folk decided to buy a field, it just gets attributed to being Judas's field because everybody knows that's the money that Judas got. Even though they gave it back to the temple and they bought the field with it, it's Judas' field. It's where he hung himself. It's where he died. And this money came from his hand. And so Acts, Luke just summarizes it by saying, this is, everybody knows this field. This is the field that Judas died in, the field of blood. It's the one that his blood money purchased. So problem solved there. One more quick sidebar before we can actually get into the text here. Uh, Suicide, and we've mentioned this before, uh, is a sin. Violates the sixth commandment. But it is not the unforgivable sin. Many churches have wrongly taught, for whatever reason, that suicide is the unforgivable sin. Like if you commit suicide, you're done. Condemned to hell. And that's simply not true. Those who have genuine faith in Christ are saved from all of their sins, past, present, and future. All right? So that's good news for you too. Even, you know, hopefully none of you will commit suicide. But, but even if you, that doesn't, you wouldn't even fall into that category, it's still good news for you. Because you have sin in your life that you're not aware of, that you haven't repented of. Right? And if we all go to hell immediately upon death, if we have any sin that we haven't repented of, we are all screwed, all right? Like, it is no good. So maybe an illustration. You're driving down the road, you have a little bit of road rage, and there is a huge accident, and in your last moments of life, uh, you raise your hand in a um, lewd gesture towards the other person, and you curse them, and then it's lights out. Is there forgiveness for you? Yes! Yes! Likewise, the person who commits suicide sins, but God's grace is still efficient. If somebody is truly in Christ, your faith is in Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He has forgiven your sin past, present, and future. Now to the next question, which I think comes to everyone's mind. Why did Judas betray Jesus It seems a little off script, right? It seems like this wouldn't have happened to Jesus. It's a scandalous betrayal. It's akin to if John Wilkes Booth would have been in Abraham Lincoln's cabinet when he assassinated him. That's how treacherous this situation is. So why did he do it? Verse 16 gives us a divine perspective. It was necessary that the Scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold. Why did he betray Jesus? Certainly it was his will, and we'll get to that in a second. But also because it was God's will. God stands above all human choices and works through human freedom to bring about his own providential goals. God freely ordains everything that is without doing violence to the will of his creatures. Judas' will just so happened to be God's will. Judas wanted to do what God had ordained in 
the scriptures. Notice this too, it could be a whole another sermon on the fact that the Bible is God's word. Look at this, scripture be fulfilled that who wrote? Well, the Holy Spirit. Look at that. That the Holy Spirit wrote it through the mouth of David. And so what we have here is an affirmation of the dual authorship of scripture. The Holy Spirit writes it and David writes it. He writes it through David in the Psalms. And we're going to get those quoted to us in a second. Peter affirms this doctrine elsewhere in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. He says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So who wrote Luke-Acts? Luke. Yes. Who else wrote Luke-Acts? The Holy Spirit through Luke. All of the Bible is God's word and we can trust it. We must obey it and be shaped by it. And so Judas betrays Jesus because it's foretold. It fits into God's plan. God's plan always unfolds according to plan. But, but let's take it back and, and say from, from Judas' perspective, what would lead him to betray Jesus. And I think the tipping point for Judas came with that famous story where Mary, the sister of Lazarus and of Martha, she comes with that really expensive perfume. Do you guys remember this perfume? It's like it's worth a year's salary, has an awful name. It's called Nard, right? If I'm buying perfume that costs a year's salary, I'm not going with Nard. Like I need it to be called, you know, Pretty Flower or Spring Rain or, or some, Lavender, even, I guess. Like something that. that elicits positive emotions. I mean, Nard just, no, not the right onomatopoeia there, I don't think. But she takes this expensive perfume and she breaks the jar and she anoints Jesus with it. And you guys remember, Judas is there and he's like, what a waste. She's worshiping Jesus with this act of extravagant devotion and Judas is infuriated. Look, we'll, we'll read Judas' response. It's in John 12. John 12, 4. I'll just read you the whole account. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead, in case you forgot. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then look at Judas' response. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds pretty righteous, doesn't it? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put into it. See, Judas betrays Jesus because he's betrayed him long ago. You see, Judas loved money more than Jesus. That was his real God. 
He had been helping himself to money from the treasury for quite a while. He didn't care about the poor. He cared about his pocketbook. Mary comes with this extravagant devotion, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. And Judas, who loves money, whines about it. Can you believe what she just did? Mary finds Jesus beautiful, and Judas finds Jesus, well, useful. Helps him to get what he wants, financially. Even though he's been walking with Jesus all these years, the truth underneath his hypocritical mask is that he doesn't love Jesus like he loves that money. Mary finds him beautiful. Judas finds him useful. What about you? Do you find Jesus beautiful or useful? It will be one or the other. Is he a means to some end that you have? Or do you love him in and of himself because he's beautiful and wonderful? Judas thought that he could keep his sin, his his little greed idol, his little greed baby, and that it would coexist with Jesus. But Jesus does not stand other gods. I mean, you can, you, can, you can see Judas, right? He's got his little baby greed and he's just carrying it around with him his whole life, nursing it. He said, don't, I don't need to worry about this secret sin that no one, wor- no one knows about. I've got my sin under control. I'm walking with Jesus. I can walk with Jesus and still still have this sin, this thing. It's not really even sin. It's just something, I just like money. I don't need to repent of it. Y'all ever seen that show, uh, When Animals Attack? At the end of of one of the episodes of the show, there's a girl who is apparently advertising shampoo or something, and and part of the ad is for her to, to lay down next to or kind of on top of a lion so that her hair kind of fans out along with its mane, right? And so as they're shooting this commercial, she kind of lays down next to the lion and gets her hair fanned out, and guess what happens? The lion attacks. No surprise there. And they're interviewing the the lion's kind of caretaker after this has happened, and he's saying, I don't know what happened, man. Can't believe it. Like, what are you talking about? This is a lion. It's an apex predator created to kill. That's what it does. What do you mean you didn't see it coming? And he's going on and on, you know, talking about nursing the little lion and taking it on walks with him and, you know, combing its mane. I can't help but think that many of us are like that lion trainer and like Judas caring for our sin, carrying it around like it's not going to turn on us. Your sin will turn on you. It will kill you. It will sink its teeth into you, swallow you whole, and then spit you out into a field of blood covered in your own intestines. That's the end of sin. Do not coddle it those who cuddle up next to their sin instead of killing it 
will be killed by it. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't play with lions. I guess the exhortation here is to to be killers. Be about holiness. Because if you are not, if you even entertain sin for a little while, it will be revealed. Your sin, the Bible tells us, will find you out. It will consume you. It consumed Judas. So, so what, what can we do to make sure that we don't go the way of Judas? Practically, is the first step is to commit to killing sin. Commit to killing your sin, to repenting of it. That's step number one. The second step, which is really 1A here, it's equally as important. Commit yourself to a local church. Commit to church membership. You you connect to God's people there, and what they're going to do is to help you walk in holiness and in submission to the scriptures. At some point, Judas had a disconnect between his outward life and his inward life, And apparently nobody got in his business enough to know that this was coming. Join a local church and open up your life to other people. When you join a church, this idea of, well, that's just my business and it's none of your business, like it has to die. The idea, it's none of your business goes to die at the local church. Because what happens when you join is all of your business becomes our business. Like it's part of how we help one another walk in holiness is that we get up in each other's space. I mean, maybe annoyingly so. How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? Are you walking with the Lord? Hey, I know you are struggling with greed. How are you doing with that? I know you are struggling with internet pornography. How are you doing with that? I know that you have struggled with jealousy. How are you doing with that? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? Brother, sister, let me pray with you about that. Let me help you through this. Connecting with one another in the church and committing to walk towards Jesus, with Jesus, by the Spirit, together, it's, it's, part and parcel to being a Christian. We help one another by bearing one another's burdens. Jude 23 tells us we were able to snatch one another from the fire. We're able to keep one another in the love of God as he keeps us in his love when we are united in a local church because we are united in Christ. We're committed to loving one another in practical ways. Friends, when you decide that you are going to disconnect from the local church, not show up to church, uh, maybe show up but not really get in relationships with other people, you are torturing the body of Christ and you are giving up on those that are in the body of Christ. Don't give up on each other. Bear one another's burdens. Be committed to one another's holiness. This is another reason that we practice church discipline or or church rescue, as it might be better named. It's that practice where we go to someone who is caught and entangled in sin and we say, brother, sister, repent. This sin will turn on you. It will kill you. Come back to Jesus. 
mean, the, the aim of church discipline is the repentance and restoration of the individual. It's why scripture tells us to do it. It's why we practice it. Because we're committed to holiness. Because God calls us to be holy as we have been declared holy in Christ. Don't give up on each other. That was unfortunate. So Judas disobeys God, turns against Jesus because it's his will and because it's God's will. As we're told, it fulfills the Psalms. Peter quotes two of them in verse 20. It's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it. And then a different psalm, and let someone else take his position. Peter recognizes that the scriptures say they need to replace Judas, and so he's obedient to that. They're going to be obedient to that. Judas must be replaced. Verse 21, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until he was taken up from us, From among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, you know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Casting lots is a legitimate way to discern God's will at this point. This is the last time it happens, so probably not prescriptive for us. Uh, But they discern that God chooses Matthias to replace Judas. And one of the qualifications, if you look at the qualifications in 21 through 22, it's somebody that had to be with Jesus throughout the entirety of his ministry. And, And the reason for that qualification is that there is a historical Um, mooring to Christianity. It happened in space and time. And so they want people that saw this whole thing go down to be eyewitnesses and to give eyewitness testimony to the truth that Jesus has been crucified for sins and is risen from the dead and ruling and reigning in heaven. And so they find someone. These are those capital A apostles, and they need to get the number to 12. I mean, they'll add Paul later, but he's kind of a weird one. He doesn't really count but he speaks with the authority of God. Anyhow, these 12, and then Paul, it's unique. It's not repeatable. You run into somebody calling themselves apostle today, saying they speak with the voice of God. Go the other direction. But why do they have to get the number back to 12? That's the question that I feel like hangs over this whole section. Why do we have to get back to 12 before we get to Pentecost? And here, I think, is the answer. Jesus didn't just randomly pick 12 guys by chance. He picked 12 disciples to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. These two things go together. And to show us that that he is, A, he's fulfilling the promises of God, and he is restoring that remnant of Israel. He's he's bringing together these 12 disciples. They're going to get the number back up to 12 to show that God, in his plan to bless the nations through Israel, well, that he's going to do just that. That he's going to, through the true Israel, that's those who have faith in God's promises, he's going to bless the nations. 
And he's going to fulfill that great promise in Joel where he says he's going to dwell with his people. Right? Peter shows us that in 2, 17 through 21. When anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so these 12 will be this, this new Israel that God is going to bless the nations through. You see, all of this is according to God's plan. He is going to bless the nations through Israel. He does it primarily in Jesus. And then Jesus works through his people Israel, these 12, to take the gospel, well, first to Jews, that's who's primarily at Pentecost, and then we see the gospel go 1-8 from Jerusalem in all Judea, this is where the Jews are, then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to us Gentiles, who are then by faith grafted into Israel, right? Paul tells us it's those who have faith that are sons of Abraham, Galatians 3-7. And so we see God's promises beginning to be fulfilled. The kingdom of God is arriving and it's continuing to arrive today and it will continue to arrive until Christ returns fully from heaven. And he's, getting, he's fulfilling these promises. He's getting ready to pull out, pour out his Holy Spirit on these people, but he wants to make it clear that he is the one doing it. That this blessing is not from a foreign God. It is from the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, This is Israel's God fulfilling his promises to Israel and pouring out his Holy Spirit. Everything always goes according to God's plan. Maybe you're here this morning and things are not going according to your plan in your life. You've got cancer or you have less money than you need. Or your children aren't the way you want them to be. Or you've lost a loved one sooner than you expected. Friend, things are happening according to God's plan. Those who have faith in Jesus who is ruling and reigning from heaven can know that he's ruling for them. That great promise in Romans 8, 28, All things work together for the good of those who love God, for you. He's using those grimmest of circumstances for your good and for his glory, even if you can't see it, even if you can't quite figure out how could this honor you, God. He knows. He's good and he's wise. You can trust him. If God can use the betrayal of Judas to bring himself the ultimate glory, if he can use the crucifixion of Christ to save his people, if he can redeem that, well, he can redeem anything. So your cancer, he's at work. Your poverty, well, he's at work. Your your loss, he's at work there. Your wealth, he's at work there. Your depression, he's at work in it. Your loneliness, he is at work in it. He is at work in your life right now, unfolding things according to his plan. And you, you might feel like the disciples probably felt when Judas betrayed Christ. What is happening? This isn't how it's supposed to go, God. But trust me. When all is said and done, and you are in glory, 
you will go. You knew exactly what you were doing, God. You gave me everything I would have asked for if I knew as much as you know. You are infinitely mighty, infinitely wise, infinitely good. You love me and you hold the whole world in your hands. Friends, when life is hard and not going according to your plans, don't give up on God because it is going according to his plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your spirit. Thank you for the cross. Confess that Jesus' death was necessary because of our sins. All of our sins are against you. We pray that you would forgive us once more this morning. That you would be training us by your word to, to trust you. To know that you have our best interests at heart. Help us to be a people who is confident. Who trade our questions of why would God let this happen for questions of what is God teaching me in this? How is he, going, how is he bringing himself glory? Make us a people who trusts you entirely. Con- conform us to the image of Christ. Make us holy. Put us in one another's business that we might exhort one another towards holiness and towards Christ. Make sure we don't give up on each other. Don't don't let any of us go the way of Judas. Tear away those secret sins that some of us are harboring this morning. Kill them. We thank you that you are the God who raises the dead and that you have raised each and every one in this room who has put their faith in Christ. You are good. Things are going according to your plan. And we are looking forward to the time when your kingdom comes in its fullness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.